Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayou, Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 27, Buried Secrets. I know it's been a while since we've been uh, in the recording studio. Um, you know, we're just happy to be back. Gretchen, would you like to elaborate a little bit more on like why we're so happy to be back? Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Um, sorry it's been a while. Unfortunately, I have um, had a little bit of an accident and I fell and broke my tibia plateau. And so Kneecap I for the rest of us <laughs> that don't know what that is. I've had to have surgery and have been laid up for a little while. And um, so been able to do some research why I've been laid up, but unfortunately it's been much harder to get around. And so Morgan has nicely brought me to the studio in my wheelchair today, but uh, we are back and ready to start today's episode. I have to say though, the one good thing is I think you've been doing some research for season two. Uh -huh. So, I mean, you know, in your spare time and you become bionic. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> How many people can say their co-host is bionic now? <laughs> Anyways, on a more serious note, um, today we're going to give you an update on one of the cases that we covered um, previously, and then we're going to also bring you Tina Flood's story today. Yeah. So I think we'll start there. We're going to update you on um, Rebecca Jean Beard's case. We brought you her case in episode 18, The Missing Girls Never Found. Rebecca was last seen on March 1st, 1986, when she went out for the evening at the Excalibur Club in Freeport, Texas. Paul Gaylord Taylor Jr. was convicted of her murder in 1995, and he confessed to shooting her at her home, at his home in Clute, Texas. He led police to an area in Angleton near the Bastrop Bayou, where he said he buried her body, but they were unable to find her remains. And just to be clear, this is the... Rebecca's the one where they found her ID in that clip, right? Yes, okay. they did find her ID. Okay. And so she went missing in 86 and it took until 95, 94 when they started to put the pieces really together and uh, 95 before they convicted mm -hmm. him. Um, so she's been missing 36 years. Um, and although her family does know that, that she is gone and that she has died, um, her family, including she had a very young child at the time, would like to be able to finally bury her remains, have a final resting place and know where she's at. So in March of 2022, Taylor made a deal with the FBI to be released from prison if Becky's remains were located and identified. Last month, the Texas EquiSearch, who we've talked about quite a bit on this program, and Moffett Services brought heavy equipment to an area near the Bastop Byway, uh, Bayou, where Taylor said he had buried Rebe Becky's remains. Uh, a large search has gone on there, uh, a lot of heavy equipment. The search has lasted about 10 days with plans for it to continue farther. The hope is that the they will finally bring her home. Becky's family has actually gone to the site, spent several days sitting at the site, hoping to be there when her remains are finally discovered. We're gonna keep you posted on this. Um, we certainly are praying that we're able to give you an update that her remains are found and that her family is finally able to 
bury her with the rest of her family. Um, if you're interested in donating to the search, because these things take an incredible amount of money. Um, although the people working on these searches are all volunteers, heavy equipment, gas, diesel, you know, food, um, all of that, it costs money to run these searches. So we'll put a link on our Facebook page if anybody's interested in donating out there. I'm sure they would appreciate it. Um, but just sending your thoughts with the family and let's let's hope we'll have, finally have an answer on this. You know, I think like one thing, just listening to you talk right now, it's, you know, I can't imagine being one of her family members sitting out there and just thinking, hopefully today's the day. You know, so I think that's kind of made it real for me. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and I guess, you know, all I can say to that is that hopefully today is the day. Yeah. So. So next we're going to talk about Tina Michelle Flood. And again, you know, sometimes when we talk about these cases that are solved, you know, the question always out there is what what can still happen? And I think when you hear the story of this case and the so many questions that are out there, this is one of those cases that I don't think the full story has ever been fully explained. I think there's so many missing pieces that people still need to be talking about this, still needs to be looked at. Mm -hmm. um, so Tina came from a large family. She was one of seven kids on November 29th, 1998. She, Tina was a 23 year old girl. She was going out to the bar for a birthday party in Seabrook, Texas with, um, she was with several coworkers and friends, but one of the people that she was with was a very good friend of hers named Justin. During the party, um, her and Justin are kind of hanging out there at the bar, and Tina happens to meet a, another young gentleman, 25-year-old auto mechanic, Jonathan Davis Drew. The two of them kind of hit it off. They're sitting there together. They're drinking. He's buying her more and more drinks. Um, there's some stories that maybe they were kissing at the bar a little bit, you know, typical kind of evening of hanging out and meeting somebody for the first time and getting to know them. The party ends, the bar closes around 2 PM. Tina and Justin had been drinking. And so they made the decision to go with other friends and get a ride to the holiday Inn there in Seabrook and stay for the evening. When they arrived at the hotel, they realized that they had forgotten Justin's employee identification card. He actually worked at a Holiday Inn, so his employee identification card would give him a discount for the hotel room. Or at least get him to like pool access at the very least, right? <laughs> so, um, so they decided that they would go back to uh, Tina's car and grab that identification. And when they're trying to figure out how they're gonna do that, because the bar is about uh, five minutes away, um, by car. So they're trying to figure out how they're doing that. They actually recognize Jonathan sitting in his truck in the hotel parking lot, kind of watching everybody there. You know, the party's kind of still continuing and just a little to bit. just kind of make that clear, Jonathan is a friend of Justin's, correct? No, um, this was okay. the first that um, Justin had actually met him too. Okay. Jonathan was at the bar with other people that evening. Um, but they are not part of this uh, birthday party. party. Uh -huh. Right. Okay. So it's just kind of, you know, everybody's there. There's the party going on and he kind of gets involved in that. 
Um, so they ask him for a ride back to the back to the bar. They uh, get in his truck and uh, Jonathan's driving and then Tina's sitting in the middle seat at the middle. It's kind of one of those bench seats and Justin's on there by the door. When they get to the bar, Justin hops out of the truck, still holding the door in order for Tina to slide across and get out. And at that point in time, um, Jonathan actually guns the vehicle and drives off, dragging Justin with him. Mm -hmm. So he's uh, holding onto the handle and thrown to the ground. He can hear Tina screaming, stop, stop, what are you doing? When um, he falls to the ground. And so Justin immediately gets up, runs to the bar. I mean, how brazen of that guy too. Right. Yeah. So, um, but when you think about Seabrook at two o'clock in the morning, I mean, really what's going to, what's going to be going on out there? Not a whole lot, you know? Um, and you know, for people who don't know, Seabrook is a small coastal town, you know, other than bars, a couple hotels, there's not a huge amount of activity out there. And by two o'clock in the morning, that place is, yeah, I mean, it's especially Especially november and not only that but like the cops too like you know if you're drinking and hanging out with your friends like you're not driving around there because it is a small town and you know they'll pull you over and stuff so especially young adults are not going to take that risk so so he's running up to the door banging on the bar hoping that there's still employees left inside and actually in this case a cop does actually drive up and notice him you know there and so he starts to explain to this police officer what has happened the police officer acts incredibly quickly so at 2:52 a.m the call goes out of a possible abduction the police quickly put the description of the vehicle and the description of tina out there so at 3:59 a.m the truck is spotted in harris county weaving between lanes a deputy pulls over the truck so we've talked back and forth about harris county is is mostly considered houston but from the description of um, some different things that happened back and forth, we feel like the area where this truck was pulled over is going to be Clear Lake, Texas. I think so, you know, because it's kind of like Kima is by NASA. Right. NASA is considered Harris County, so I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So um, the officer pulls him over, asks the man for his license. As Jonathan re- leans across the seat to get his license, the deputy notices at his foot that Tina is there on the floorboards of the truck. Jonathan looks at the deputy and says that she's a friend of his and that um, she has passed out drunk. The deputy notices that Tina is all bunched up, kind of in a a fetal type Mm -hmm. position. Uh, She's up against the door. He notices abrasions on her legs and her buttocks, her arms, and that she's only wearing a skirt. The deputy then immediately calls for backup and asks Jonathan to step out of the vehicle. The deputy notices that Jonathan has scratches on his neck and blood on his shirt. When they searched the truck, they found both Jonathan and Tina's underwear, and they also find her blouse. She was taken to the hospital, rushed to the hospital. She's taken to uh, Clear Lake Hospital. And at that point in time, a sexual assault kit is done. And she is talking. She's 
pretty coherent at that point in time and talking enough that she's saying to um, people there, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. She was given a CAT scan and at that time they detected a fracture in her skull and she had brain swelling. She was rushed into surgery and sadly Tina died during surgery. So, you know, I mean, thank God though that, you know, her friend Justin alerted the police and they were able to find her. I mean, an hour is not that long. Unfortunately, right. it was long enough for him to hurt her right ultimately kill her but at least she wasn't like another girl gone missing and never found and that kind of thing too you know it's just it's unfortunate what has happened but they got involved pretty quickly right they got involved pretty quickly mm -hmm. um and when you this is one of those situations where when you look at this you cannot help but say to yourself what was his exit plan you know, um, was he going to just drop her back off at the bar or in a parking lot? Or would this be somebody that we were searching for years later in a bayou? Mm -hmm. So, and I mean, he may not even have known at that point if he had done fatal damage, the, right? To be honest, you know, so maybe he thought he'd just drop her off. You it, know, it is possible, mm -hmm. it is, it's certainly possible. We, you know, the, the problem with this is you just don't know, right? You know, um. And, and you're not going to really know. I mean, you don't know what was in his head. So, um, but well, no, cause I don't think he had long enough to even figure that out from the time that he abducted her. And then the time that he was pulled over by the cops, right. He probably didn't have enough time no, to actually figure that figure out, out, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't think he was taking her to a hospital. <laughs> no, I doubt that too. So, um, the medical examiner stated that she had two skull fractures, um, and it took a considerable amount of force to cause those injuries. He stated that her other injuries appeared to be from being dragged across the concrete and she had injuries on her back from being stepped on swabs taken from the rape kit at the time matched, uh, Jonathan's DNA. And it was concluded that she had been sexually assaulted. You know, that's crazy to me though, because now that you said that again, for, for the 10th time and I'm thinking about it she could have tried to get out of the car and then he drug her back in there. Right. And that's how she, you know, got the concrete marks and stuff. That's crazy. So, um, well, and yeah, because at some point in time she's out of the car. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, and you know, she, it could be that she actually attempted to leap from mm -hmm. the car while it was moving. True. So we've uh, seen it before. Mm hmm. On December 2nd, 1998, police executed a search warrant for a search of a League City home located just off Calder Road near Calder Field. This home was the home of Jonathan's parents, a home that he was known to share with them. At the time, it's a little bit confusing though here. Um, at the time he does seem to be living in Austin, but coming back and staying with his parents. And I think, you know, if you can think of a, a typical 25 year old who's living up in Austin, has his own apartment, but coming back and forth and staying with mom and dad, hanging out he came with friends. Home to do his laundry, yeah. you know, and kill a girl. So <laughs> just saying. Yeah. Um, but the home's location is like within a stone's throw of the infamous Calder field where you have four other victims 
And so when you're talking about where this home is located and we've spent a lot of time talking about that corner of Calder Road and Irvine, the trailer park there and the other homes, that's where this home is located. You know, and it's kind of weird to me because by the time of this incident, that's very public knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, that this area is being looked at or, you know, it's being dug up, whatever it is, you know, that's definitely on the radar. Right. So, you know, it does surprise me the coincidence in it, I guess. So this is, it's one of those, you know, it's, it's kind of like this story always brings us back full circle, right? you know? Mm-hmm. So many of these victims are connected in in ways that even we didn't imagine and when you talk about this case being connected to that location even though they're so very different there is this this connection that goes back and i don't know you know we'll talk a little bit bit more about what his history is but growing up and being near that field and and knowing every day and getting on the bus stop down there on Calder and hearing of those girls, you just wonder how much that influenced later life. Yeah. And I mean, what's weird to me too is like when we're going over this case and I know I'm giving you that look like, are you effing kidding me? Mm-hmm. You know, like, are you kidding me? same area it's just almost like a magnet to this stuff it's just weird is uncanny like weird so the search warrant is executed at that home the police go in and from an area that was jonathan's area so i'm assuming like a room or you know it within his stuff was seized a baseball bat with an unknown stain a flat metal bar with also an unknown stain a black pair of women's panties uh, a t-shirt and then four ski caps a vial of human teeth the women's panties were not identified as belonging to one of his victims. Um, the Although testing on the teeth did not say who they belonged to, it was later concluded that these teeth were baby teeth. Uh, yeah, his, but baby teeth can be, like, tested, right? For DNA, yes, they could, but whether or not in 1998 they were DNA testing them, um, but if they were still in evidence, it could be tested, right? Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that a, the medical examiner is looking at them. His parents are saying these are his baby's oh, teeth, okay. and the medical examiner is, is probably looking at them being like, these are baby's teeth. You know, I don't think that there was any doubt at that point in time that these were baby teeth. I don't have my own baby teeth, but I know that a lot of parents keep their kids. <laughs> well, my 16-year-old literally was still getting baby teeth taken out of her mouth like weeks right. ago. So, I mean... I don't know that it's that unusual <laughs> that he had a vial of his baby teeth. Okay. So. And then wait, four ski masks? That I think is unusual. Okay. okay. Four. That, that, in Texas. the fact that you're in Southwest, that Southwest Texas, <laughs> and, and I know for some of our listeners out there, they're like, well, it was November. It's so hot. So just so you know, there is never a reason for a ski mask in, in, te- in this area of Texas. There's not. Now, I don't live in Austin, so maybe he needed a ski mask in Austin. I know it can be colder up in there, but 
I think that in League City, no, it's very strange that he had four ski masks. Yes. So now, if it was just anybody else, maybe not. But we're I'm gonna... sorry. If I'm going through your stuff and I see you with four ski masks, friend, I'm gonna be like, why do you need four of these? <laughs> Always. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I don't know. The four ski mask thing to me is strange. Um, you know, you never get any answer of whether or not the bat or any of the other items were tested or DNA testing was done on those. That's unfortunate because I feel like that could have answered some questions, but we just don't have those answers. Well, sure. I mean, um, if you have a gang of friends that are all hanging out, I mean, even if it was like a fun, like cops and robbers, you still got four of them. So yeah. The one other thing that does come out of here is that police did bring search dogs onto the property of his home and nearby surrounding area. Those dogs did lead. Those search dogs were um, cadaver dogs. Those cadaver dogs did lead police to a pond located behind his house. That pond was drained in an attempt to find possible other victims. And so unfortunately they did not they the bones that were found in that pond were only the bones of animals however again when you're talking about this location you know and talking about you know a pond being drained in this location cadaver dogs you know possibly finding human scent out there it, it just you know you can do a lot of things in water and then not leave right. them there mm -hmm. you know and then it is an isolated area. But what I will say about this is from the very beginning, police were definitely focused in on him being involved in more than just this incident with Tina. You know, if they're going out there and they're searching with these cadaver dogs, they are more tuned in to thinking that he had other victims out there. And that's because of what they found in the League City home? You think? Or I think is that, that behavior um, overall? So from what I can tell is it, it really had a lot to do with a few things that happened right after she was brought into the hospital. When she's brought into the hospital, um, one of the nurses who takes care of her at Clear Lake Hospital really starts to focus in on some of her injuries. Um, and she recognizes the photo of Jonathan David Drew as the man who in October of 1998 assaulted her in her parking lot of her apartment building. She said that um, the man who she's identifying now as Drew grabbed her wrist, tried to drag her into his car. She then broke free. He then grabbed a bottle, broke it and cut her. She kicked him in the knees and ran and escaped him. So she did report at the time and um, gave police a description of him. And then, you know, as this is going on, this woman's brought into the hospital and, and she's kind of flashing back to the things that happened and seeing his photo. She says that it was Drew who did that. This apartment complex is also uh, located out there near Calder. So it is within that area. The other thing that happens at the same time is an officer who's working this case notices you know drew and his 
hones in on the fact that he has a sketch of a person who resembles Drew. He goes back, talks to his victim, brings his victim a kind of identification lineup with Drew now in it. And she identifies him as the man who abducted her on November 21st of 1997. So about a year earlier, she was sitting in her car at a traffic light on Calder Road and West Main Street in League City, which would be just blocks from where Calder Field is, blocks from where he lives. And she was sitting in her car when who she identifies as Drew now, and another man jumped into her car, grabbed her, held her down on the floor of the passenger side. And then while one man was holding her, the other man got in her car, drove her car down the road to a trailer area, repeatedly raped her, threatened to kill her. And when they were done, they left her and she was able to take her car and get help. Um, and then the police were called. There was a sketch done of the second man. And even till this day, he has never been identified. All right. So now we have an incident where Jonathan David Drew has an accomplice. I mean, that's crazy to me. So do the police like suspect anybody? Do other people think there's some kind of connection there? I mean, is there like this weird, like, you know, my mentor thing? I mean, what, what is it? Well, there certainly, as I was doing a lot of research for this case, there are all sorts of theories out there. And one of the theories that, that is out there that, is spent quite a bit of time is whether or not, um, you know, Drew is kind of somebody who was mentored by maybe an older gentleman who was involved in these killings on Calder Road. Um, you have to admit, this is a whole lot of activity in the one area that's also getting a lot of heat at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you do anything around there, Tim Miller, something on your ass. I'm just sorry. He is. He's going to be checking into it. Yeah. I mean, all you can say though is, you know, to try to connect Drew to those cases, you know, you're talking about somebody who is it's a tw- stretch, right? You're right. 25 years Unless old. Unless he has a mentor. Right. When, and we can put the pictures out there on the Facebook page of the, of the sketch. Um, to me, the person in the sketch doesn't look like somebody who is significantly older than Drew. So maybe a couple of years, but again, you know, and, and we've talked about this quite a bit. One of the things that I think you always have to be careful with is sketches. Right. You know, and I'll put this out there too. This is not going to be a very popular thing to put out there, but I do start to hesitate when the way that drew is identified in these other cases are that the person helping a victim at the hospital is then all of a sudden now identifying him i i'm not i'm not doubting her story please don't think that i am but eyewitness identification can be so very skewed 
And so when you... I mean, I could maybe understand that in this case and maybe a lot of other cases too, but it hadn't been that long. No, no, it had been not that long. You know, I mean, it's to me a little bit different if you're talking five years, something, but I mean, when you're talking that short amount of time... No, it had, and I, I'll give you that. It had not been that long, you know, but. And I'm sure she wasn't the first sexual assault victim that she saw come through there with a lot of wounds or something with sketches, you know. But she's going to probably be the first sexual assault she came, that she saw come through there since her sexual assault. Because you're Maybe. talking 30 days, you know. Maybe, but I mean. It's a big city, and at that time, it's probably one hospital and one urgent care. Right I mean, now, it's different. Yeah, there's a possibility. I just, you know, um, and and please don't think that I'm t saying that this victim is is in any way, shape, no, or form no, making this up. No. I don't, I don't think that at all. But um, it just you always have to be a little bit cautious when you have somebody who's now in the media with his pictures out there and being like, okay, well, it looks a lot like this sketch, you know? And one of the things that the police did not do, which, you know, is they did not release that sketch earlier. They only released the, the sketch of the second unidentified man. So you don't have the sketch that they compared to, to say, Oh, Drew looks a lot like this. Um, you know, and again, he's active on Calder. That's where his parents live. So, you know, in a lot of ways, all roads lead to him. Right. You know, and, and I do think that, you know, this is a, a person who does seem to be escalating. So yes, it does make sense that he was, involved in in other things if you're gonna abduct a girl out of a bar with the her friend sitting in the seat next to you that's pretty brazen so abducting somebody at a, at a traffic light with you know as brazen as that seems it doesn't seem as brazen as as abducting somebody at the bar with their where, friend yeah where everybody's seen you drinking with her for the evening so so no i mean i i think it's it's a very it's actually probably less brazen to be honest. It, it is less honestly. Yeah. And so I think it's a very good possibility, you know, um, but it also, it does lead to that question, you know, who else, who else was he involved in? Certainly. You know? Um, and I agree with you. Was it a, a type of mentor type thing? You know, this is not the only person that we have brought forward who lived down in that area who also confessed to crimes. Right. So the other one that we had that lived in that area was Mark Roland Stallings who confessed to the murder of Donna Prudhomme, who was buried on in Calder field and he confesses in 1998, which is at the same time. What we know about Stallings was that he was known to have accomplices, or at least according to his own confessions. So we know but he's- why would you get up, give up your prodigy that you've been working with so long, you know? I mean, come on, you could have been grooming that guy. He, to be a I killer. You never know. No, and we don't know. We don't know that these two didn't have anything to do with each other. What we do know is that they're in the same area, um, around the active around the same time. And so, well, um, Stallings in 1998 is in jail, but, um, 
but we know that we know that Stallings was was active before Mm -hmm. so so we don't know we don't have any idea but it's a hell of a coincidence that you have so much activity and so many of these younger men coming out of this area I don't know with this almost maturity in their like I was gonna say sickness well, like some I mean, sort of sick they're sick but yeah. they almost have this maturity about them at a certain young age right to like the comfortableness like let me f- mess with you at a stop sign or a stoplight like that's yeah like, i'd be like oh my god is somebody around me looking at me like you know like but just you're so brazen about it right and one other thing that kind of starts to come in here is while drew is awaiting trial um the investigator employed by jessica kane's family which if you're not familiar with the jessica kane case please listen listen to episode 21 but she actually went missing while driving home um in august of 1997 after leaving a theater party at the time of her abduction witnesses came forward saying they saw a red truck or red amigo traveling alongside of jessica's car investigators found that jonathan's ex-girlfriend actually drove a red amigo and that he was known to have access to that amigo bringing it into the shop um, for repairs and driving it quite often the police actually tracked down the amigo it had sold to a different owner they tracked it down um, and it was turned over to galveston police for further testing now years later we know that william lewis reese confesses to the murder of jessica kane and leads police to her body he's awaiting trial on her case uh now and it it does kind of again make you wonder reese as far as we know did not have an accomplice but in the last year is that one thing that came out where this victim says that she was abducted by reese he had an accomplice with Mm -hmm. him that day who he did kill you know um yeah and and, you know obviously it's not this not this same person but you know um it's not out of the realm of possibility that reese could have had an accomplice i mean and maybe 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 he wasn't an accomplice but like hey you want to see this like hey Mm -hmm. we have similar interests let's see what we can do you know reese is not the type of person in my opinion that would be like oh yeah so and so was there he's not going to give credit to anybody else at that point i mean he wants his fame right no i definitely think that reese is a narcissist Mm -hmm. if he ever had an accomplice in any of these other you know murders he's never going to give that up agreed so um also through this then you know drew does become a suspect in lowercase smithers which again is another case that that reese is uh connected to interesting um, enough huh it <laughs> it is you know there was a time one time when you and i were talking about this and you said to me what do all these guys get together and like hang out at the at the same place and like trade information and i really gave you this look was like that <laughs> is just <laughs> Just, right up there are the truckers at this point yeah, you know like, i was just like that is just like crazy theory 
time of thinking that, you know, they, they had like a club, I think is what you said to me. Um, yeah, because they could ride it on like bathroom stalls and stuff. Like we've seen that. We know that happens, but you cannot tell me this is, it's odd enough with how small an area we're talking about that all of this comes out of there. It's, it's odd enough. I am, I'm definitely the person who will tell you that I think it's just a bunch of coincidences. Mm -hmm. I'm the type of person that's going to tell you no. I mean, yes, but four ski masks. I, no, four. (laughs) I think, I personally feel like it's a bunch of coincidences. He lived near that area and that's a coincidence. Maybe it's what started his obsession as a young man on this type of, of behavior, but I don't I okay. don't think that he was was involved with Reese, but but here's the thing. I I think that then I would be mistaken to tell you, hey, there's no possibility that that could have happened. Dude, okay, think about this. And there are certainly a lot of people who are out there on message boards who believe exactly the same thing. Okay, but say, let's just say, at that time, let's say, give or take 15 years, there's like three bars that stay open past a certain time. Because we know around coastal communities they close early right they do they don't stay open all night yeah you know you have predators that could be sitting in those parking lots and see another predator pull up me like oh he's trying to get in on my playing field it's possible it is so i know it sounds out there i know it sounds like a reach i do i do even the age difference Okay. Because they're starting somewhere. No, and I one thing that I would like to say is that I feel like we've gone down a really weird rabbit hole <laughs> on this episode. I'm but sorry. No, no. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I do think that sometimes it's good to go th- down that rabbit hole. I'm and because I think there are other people who who might be looking at it the same way and saying, you know, were these guys in cahoots with each other? Were they talking to each other? Was there some, why do you have so many of them that overlap in these odd coincidences? And it's but, almost like that camaraderie between those, those types, right? right? But I'm the type who will tell you that I think it's a coincidence. I disagree. <laughs> I mean, I think there's coincidences. Don't get me wrong. The coincidences of them never crossing paths, I think is very slim at this point. But I think we're going to leave that out there for the viewers and let them kind of make their own decisions. Please give us some feedback on this. So um, I want to kind of bring us back to, you know, a little bit more on the history of of what was going on with... uh, Jonathan David Drew. And one of the important parts out there that is still one of those last questions is, so we have him involved in these possible abduction and abduction at the um, traffic light, but then there's another, another bit that's going on. And one of that is that because he was living in Austin, the Austin police department start to look at, at what's going on there too. So um, let's talk a little bit. 
So Austin um, has an incident that happens on November 14th, 1998. It was a very busy Saturday evening when at the 7-Eleven on Manock, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, but Manock Road and Berkeley Avenue in Austin, a woman cautiously pulls a clerk aside and whispers, I'm here against my will. The clerk, not believing what he had heard her say, asked her, I'm sorry, can you repeat yourself? So at that point in time, the woman slipped something in his pocket. The man that she was with returned and told her, let's go, and she left with him. The clerk, a guy named Luke, got very busy with some other customers and didn't look at what she had slipped in his pocket for a few minutes. When he pulled it out, he noticed that it was a note written on a piece of her shoe, and it said, I'm being held against my will. I mean, the desperation to take the sole of your shoe out to write a message like that. Right. So. Oh, my God. You know, um, but this... So the very sad part of this is please do get involved right away. They know they get security cameras um, because they have what's going on with Drew and him. Um, they're looking for, you know, kind of a connection up there in Austin. They compare his image with the image on the security care cameras. He's of similar weight, height and build. Um, they believe that it was G Drew accompanying a Hispanic woman, that they walked into the store looking kind of like normal, nothing was going on. She went to the bathroom, um, and then when she came out of the restroom, that's when she approaches the clerk. He then approaches her, they leave together, and all the pretty much all the police who are involved in this, who have looked at this, swear that that's Jonathan David Drew on the uh, camera. Um, he's wearing an Exxon shirt. Um, they do know that he did work for Exxon while he was up in the Austin area. And, but at the time there are no missing persons report in that area that match the description of that woman. And sadly, I can't find any more on this case. Police tried for a while you know, to make this happen, doing the best that they could of, of trying to put it out to the public, that they were looking for this woman, that they were looking for any information on this. And it just, it, nothing ever comes forward. I, I think that, you know, the, the part of this is, I personally feel like this woman is out there somewhere. Either she went missing at this time and was never heard from again, or um he eventually lets her go so you know we do have to remember that the person was let go at the stoplight so maybe you know she was let go um and never came forward and told police but this piece of this puzzle this is one of those things that makes you almost stay up at night mm -hmm. and so um austin police did also have two other reports of sexual assault against Drew both in um, October, one in October, one in um, November. Um, those two sexual assault cases were um, women who had came forward, said that they were hired as escorts to go to Drew's apartment to dance for him, that he refused to allow them to go and sexually assaulted both of them. Warrants were served on his apartment. Um, they actually found um, torn underwear belonging to both victims and an earring that had been torn from one of the victims. So um, these two women, um, these cases 
at the time it was said that law enforcement was going to go forward with prosecuting Drew with these cases. In the end, they did not go forward. Um, he was never prosecuted for either of those cases, but, um, which, which is sad. Um, I think because what you said earlier is if that those cases had gone forward with prosecution, we don't know how much more information would have possibly come out at that trial. Or how many other women right. or, I mean, you just, you don't know what could have come from that. Right. And sometimes all it takes is just like that one strong person for another person. You know? And in this short period of time, he's going back and forth from Austin to outside of Lake City, which is roughly what, a, how long of a trip about? It's about three hours. It's about three hours. Long, I mean. So, um, so anywhere in between that, you could also have victims, mm -hmm. you know, not just in these areas, but anywhere in between you could have victims. Um, and he's brazen. <laughs> so, um, and what's really scary about this is it seems like he's escalating. He's getting more and more brazen with mm -hmm. with his behavior or he needs to fulfill that need yeah you know more often so he did go on trial um at the trial he did not testify but his defense put on a case saying that it was very possible that tina had sustained her injuries at the bar why being drunk maybe she had fallen down maybe some of her injuries were the result of cpr and a breathing tube being inserted um luckily the jury saw through all of that and he was convicted of capital murder he um he was sentenced to life um and at his sentencing hearing seven women testified so many of those women are the women that we have talked about earlier so the the two escorts um the two women the one at the stoplight and the the other woman that he tried to kidnap um earlier Another woman who was 14 years old when she was sexually assaulted by him when he was 16, and that would have been 10 years earlier, testified. So, um, so there, these women testified at a sentencing hearing that this would, you know, that this, this was a pattern of behavior by mm -hmm. him. So for really all of his adult life, right. you know, a uh, teenager to adult life, um, Things that have come out later, kind of on message boards, you do have some of the people who worked with him. One of the very concerning thing that comes out there is they talk about in the mechanic shop where he was working, that he would have catalogs sent to that mechanic shop with police equipment. Yeah, and I remember asking you, just I'm going to ask you again for our mm -hmm. listeners, is why do you think that is? And I said for tasers, like for you know, like weapons to put somebody down. And you said for like the lights mm -hmm. on the car. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, to me, you know, when you're looking at like police equipment and stuff like that, and a mechanic who would be able to get that type of equipment into the mechanic shop, I'm thinking like, it's yeah, right. I'm thinking that he would have, yeah, he would have been able to successfully install, um, lights onto a vehicle. Onto, onto one of his vehicles. Yeah, sure. And so, you know, now that that's coming out years later, you just wonder, you know, as you look at some of those cold cases where you have those women who go missing in those vehicles, mm -hmm. it's just, this is somebody who should be looked at. Well, and, and I think certainly 
that overall overall situation should be looked at because we're more aware of that now yes right my kids have grown up aware of that but 20 years ago we were just learning about that about that ability to make yourself vulnerable Mm -hmm. you know to a police officer slash fake police officer right you know, nowadays, I think we have those conversations with people about, you know, if you don't feel like that's a police officer behind you, then pull into a police station. That Keep or driving. you can call yeah. them too. Right. You, you can, can call them you and know? say, I have somebody behind me. Absolutely. And, but I think that it's always still important to always visit that with everybody. If you have somebody who's pulling you over and you're in a vehicle be, by yourself, and you're not 100% sure that that's a police officer behind you then it's okay to take that step to protect yourself, to call Mm -hmm. and say, I have somebody who's pulling me over. I'm not 100% sure this is where my location is. And I don't think no matter what the circumstances are, the police would want you to do that if you felt that way. They would. I think that any officer would want you to take that precaution. So so the the last part and just wrapping up on um, him is, you know, sadly, we're not going to be able to get any answers out of him. He dies on January 11th of 2020 from the flu and pneumonia, uh, organ failure, why he's in prison. So, um, and, but he really wasn't bringing forth any information to anybody. And I don't know if, if that's because once convicted, he pretty much just fell off of anybody's radar. The only good thing that we can say about Jonathan David Drew is that the the work that the officers did in the very beginning of getting the sexual assault kit done and testing that with DNA, that means his DNA is in that system. Mm-hmm. And so if a cold case is able to come forward with DNA, you know, it can always be connected to this. But what we know about so many of these cold cases is that DNA isn't even an option. Yep. So it's not preserved. It could be lost or it was just never taken or not enough to be tested. So. Yeah. And there's you know. multiple reasons behind that. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining us today and we're glad to be back in the studio. I hope this, you know, makes you kind of think, I mean, we're definitely looking at each other like, oh my God, we're still thinking, right? Like, <laughs> that's how we just looked at each other. So, um, and, you know, I mean, I think for us, don't be afraid to ask those questions. Don't be afraid to to come up with those conspiracy theories and to say, is it possible? You know, I'm, I'm definitely the more practical one who says, no, that can happen. But I, but I want to hear from other people who say, I think you're wrong. And then I'm going to be like, look, Gretchen, it is possible. And this is how it's possible because they're meeting in parking lots. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, guys, we do appreciate your, uh, your patience for us to get back on, you know, yeah. on, on, on it. And so check out our Facebook page. We'll uh, put updates out there for any cases. And um, we are hoping to continue to bring you updates on some of our cases. We actually are are working on updates on two cases too. So coming, coming soon. So bye. Thanks.